0: Well, good morning. It is uh, really good to be back, and I was uh, back last Sunday, and I've been back at things, so to speak, for just over a week uh, after uh, being away on our study and refreshment leave. And I want to first of all just say thank you to so many of you for just words of encouragement. Thank you for your prayers Uh, for Lisa and I during this time away. It has uh, truly been a real blessing in in so many different ways. And uh, I kind of knew I was back when uh, two days ago I, I had my first dream about work. And, uh, I woke up in the night and I, uh, I don't know if I woke up in the night, I woke up in the morning remembering this dream though and, and when I do sermon prep I have a variety of different kind of stages that it goes to and, you know, by Thursday it's maybe 60 or 70 percent or I don't know what percent there it depends on the week. And then, you know, in the remaining time it, it comes to completion. And in this dream, what happened was, is I got up here just now, and it was really about this Sunday morning, it was quite interesting, it was very specific, and I got up and I opened my Bible, and I realized I hadn't done the completion thing. It was just at that 60% 60 mode, and so it was the stress of having to figure it out on the fly, and it was all over the map, and it made no sense, and so anyways, so you can be the judge at the end of today, whether that dream is true or not. How about that? Uh... But no, I think we 've had a little bit more time to kind of pull some things together, but it is uh, good to be back amongst your people and uh, we 've been in this uh, series in James, and there 's been numerous people uh, giving leadership in that, and especially Mike Morrison, which I have really appreciated. I know he would I knew he would do a good job, and i 've heard from many of you that he and and others have done a great job uh, throughout this summer. We are today in the last chapter of this book of James, a letter written by uh, this individual known as James. And so today we're going to look at the first verses of chapter 5 and uh, next Sunday will be the completion and the conclusion of this series and and of this letter. But in in many ways today is a continuation of of last week and what Mike spoke on last week at the end of of chapter 4 um and it makes sense in a variety of ways because it's it's a letter i mean these are letters that were written to individuals to challenge them encourage them uh and a whole variety of different things and the reference points of of chapters and verses were added later and so the fact that it continues on with some uh connection doesn't uh, isn't surprising but it's this challenge that is there between the divide of the rich and the poor and the reality that there are those who are sort of the wealthy elite and those who are, are struggling just to get by and living hand-to-mouth day-to-day. And that was true in this situation and what James was partly addressing and writing to. And it's also true in our day uh, as well, that uh, there are these challenges that are there. And so last week, it was more about this disposition of people who were believers and who had Uh, businesses and who had money and who did financial and business transaction and lived with this confidence of sort of knowing or thinking at least that they had everything under control and so it was speaking to this disposition of 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 arrogance and of needing rather to have a sense of God's sovereignty in their lives and to allow a generous margin for that of the Lord's will in our own plans in our own thinking and so on and this week, it's more about the oppressive and the abusive kind of stance that those who uh, have wealth uh, might take in different ways, and, and we'll see that here in just a minute. So let me just read, if you have James, uh, your Bible open, James chapter 5, I'm going to read verses 1 to 6, uh, just to start with, as we'll walk through this text here together. So James says, Look here, you rich people, weep and groan with anguish because of all the terrible troubles ahead of you. Your wealth is rotting away and your fine clothes are moth-eaten rags. Your gold and silver have become worthless. The very wealth that you are counting on will eat away your flesh like fire. This treasure you have accumulated will stand as evidence against you on the day of judgment. For listen, hear the cries of the field workers whom you have cheated of their pay. The wages you held back cry out against you. The cries of those who harvest your fields have reached the ears of the Lord of heaven's armies. You have spent your years on earth in luxury, satisfying your every desire. You have fattened yourselves for the day of slaughter. You have condemned and killed innocent people who do not resist you. Now there's a cheerful ending to a letter. Wow, a little bit harsh. I wouldn't recommend it for those of you who write letters and sort of conclude with this kind of thought in some kind of way. But when you read those harsh words, when you see uh, some of the things that are on the page here and you wrestle with it. You have to ask at least a couple of questions. Number one, why? why? Why is it such strong language? Why is James speaking in such a strong word in this way? And then secondly, who? Who is it that he's speaking to? Who is he talking about? Now on the first point, we have to remember that here is James inspired by the Holy Spirit of God and speaking on behalf of God and therefore speaking a very bold word. And it is a word of judgment. It is a word of warning. And so it is a strong word that we need to pay attention to, to some real abuses that were happening in this context, context, and also where we can see those abuses happening today as well. And then the second point, or the second question of, well, who? Who is this speaking to? Who is it that James is talking to? It doesn't really seem totally clear. Is it wealthy believers, those who are followers of Christ, or is it wealthy people who are non-believers? And as you look at this text in its context, you get the sense that he is actually probably more speaking to those who are non-believers, who are wealthy in their culture, and oppressing those who are believers and poor in their midst. James seems to have made a shift from chapter 4, again, where he spoke to these wealthy Christian business owners who were living in an arrogant way, believing that they were in control, as we talked about, And, and now he is making this shift. And really the whole section that we're going to look at today of verse 1 to 12 is really speaking to those who are pressed and poor and those who are facing all kinds of injustice and really struggling with how to live out their faith, how to live in confidence, how to just make it through this day with what they're facing. And so this whole text we want to have in mind that that is sort of what is being addressed here. But he begins with this scathing word of judgment. I believe to the non-Christian rich who were landowners and, and who are the business leaders of that time. And, and it's sort of a word to those who aren't in the room, so to speak, to encourage those who are in the room. It's sort of a word to those who aren't really the recipients of this letter to encourage those who actually are the recipients of this letter. It's speaking to some reality and to some truth about God's judgment for people, for all people. And it says this scathing word that unless they repent that those who hoard wealth and withhold wages those who live in luxury and self-indulgence ignoring the needs of others that all that all that they have to look forward to is god's wrath on that judgment day pretty strong word but there's a danger here i think there's a danger here for those who are followers of christ for those of us reading these words today looking at this text today the danger is that we would just dismiss it as to not applying to us in any way and we might do so on a couple of fronts. First of all, we might dismiss it because we might say, well, we're not the rich. I mean, we're, we're not those who would be in any way considered rich in one way or another. And if you were here and remember back in our series on Timothy, back in March, actually, where we looked at that text that talks about the rich and how, it is to, how we need to be living as rich people, it was sort of this challenge that is really hard for us, people living in one of the wealthiest nations of the world, to not in some measure consider ourselves rich. And I won't go back through that again, but I think it's difficult for us to kind of go, well, no, 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 that's definitely not us. It doesn't apply to us because we're not rich. The second way that we might dismiss it is we might just dismiss it outright because, well, if he's speaking to non-believers, it doesn't apply to us. I think one of the great schemes of the enemy as we hear the word of God, as we study the word of God, is that we just dismiss the word of God in one way or another for one reason or another because we think, well, this just doesn't apply to us. And yet, if this is a strong word to the, to the unbeliever, how much more important is it for us as rich believers to hear this? Aren't we called even in a heightened way to follow Christ? And so here again, we have this theme of of wealth and poverty and the relationship that is there that runs through the book of James. And we have this harsh warning to those who not only are rich, but also we'll see there are warnings to those who are also oppressed. And so we need to listen and we need to allow the Holy Spirit of God to speak to us and to not dismiss it in any way, but to ask deeper questions. There have been times in my life where I have been accused or had accusations leveled against me that were harsh, full of judgment, and from my perspective, not true. And I'm sure many of you can relate to that where you go through a season in your life or you go through a time where suddenly you're accused of something in some context and you think, no, 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 this isn't accurate. It's not not valid or whatever the case may be, but it comes across as a harsh and strong judgment. When that happens to us, it's really easy to take offense, isn't it? It's really easy for us to just sort of take offense and go, okay, boy, that, and just walk in a wounded way. Or another response that we might have is we, we go on the offensive, right? And we just start throwing dirt ourselves. And we can just start throwing things back and hope something sticks in that way. And, and so that might be another way that, that we respond. Or we just sort of dismiss it outright and say, well, you know what? It's not accurate, so you just dismiss it. Remember a number of years ago, uh, another pastor reminded me or introduced me to a a really great phrase when these kinds of things happen and it came from his own life of having all kinds of accusations kind of thrown against him in different ways and and the phrase was this when those things come your way to just simply say to whoever it is that's accusing you simply to say this i really hope it's not true what you're saying i really hope it's not true and something about that phrase is really powerful because it it says a few things. It says that there is an openness to discerning what God wants to speak to you in that. It says that you're actually asking and open to saying, you know what, maybe, God, you need to reveal something within me. Maybe there is some kind of evil lurking within me or in my thoughts, my attitude or my actions that I'm just not seeing. And so even by that phrase, when accusations come your way of saying, oh, Lord, I hope it's not true. It has this posture or this openness and readiness to maybe have God reveal something to you that you need to hear. It signals a readiness to own our own stuff, which sometimes is really hard to do. But to have a readiness to own our own stuff, whatever it is, and maybe if the case is there, to repent and ask for forgiveness. And so as you listen and as you reflect, even on this text today, and as you look at these words of harsh judgment that that you and I, that each of us would have this openness and and say, Lord, I hope it's not true. I hope that there's no part of this that is also true of me. And God, if there is, that you would just show it to me, that you would reveal it to me, and that you would deal with it in me. And so we see in this text that James warns of this imminent misery that is going to come on Judgment Day to those who are living in this way. And he says that there is a Judgment Day, and there is one true judge who will judge justly and righteously and he says there are, there's warnings to all these people who have all of this wealth and they're putting it to no good use for anyone else. But they're just hoarding it. They're not using it for kingdom purposes. They view their life and their wealth as only there for personal pleasure. And again in this text with James and... With Paul's writing on money and financial things, it's not condemning a capitalistic work ethic, but it's condemning and challenging the selfishness that can creep in when we have that kind of mindset, when we live in that kind of culture especially. That there is a selfishness that can creep in and a self-centeredness that can creep in so easily. And so James is is challenging about this unused wealth that's going to just rot away and be lost. And in fact, he says, it's going to be used against you there's these people that were withholding pay from their workers and they weren't paying the wages that they should have been paying they just weren't doing it they were cheating them out of it but also there was this idolatry that was happening because it says in here in this text that it was this wealth that they began to count on is the word that he uses and so this wealth was becoming the very things that these people were counting on they were putting their trust in they were putting their faith in and it is an idolatry Because as we see in Scripture, we're supposed to put our trust and our confidence in the Lord Jesus Christ, not on these gifts that God has given us. And so that's part of what James is challenging here as well. In Proverbs chapter 18, verses 10 and 11, we see this contrast of these two different approaches of how people live trusting in God and how people live trusting in their wealth. And so in in Proverbs chapter 18, verse 10, it says, The name of the Lord is a strong fortress, and the godly run to him and are safe. And this truth of how people who are godly, they look to the name of the Lord as their fortress and their safety and their security and their confidence and their trust. And that is the foundation of their lives. But then in contrast, verse 11, it says the rich think of their wealth as a strong defense. And they imagine it to be a high wall of safety. And so the contrast there is that the wealthy or the ones who are not seeing God as having this role, they they look to their wealth as the wall of defense and the thing that keeps them safe and secure and so on and so again as we read these tests we need to ask the question oh lord i hope it's not true of me show in me wherever this may have application the book of james is probably the book more than any other uh, book in the new testament that has similarities to what's known as the sermon on the mount and in the early chapters of Matthew, of the Gospel of Matthew, there are these chapters where Jesus has his most profound teaching to his disciples and to those who are around him and, and listening and watching and observing. And it's known as the Sermon on the Mount. And James has all kinds of parallels. And if you look for it, there's all kinds of parallels. Even though it doesn't uh, name the name of Jesus a whole lot in the book of James, it re- references his teaching over and over again, especially the Sermon on the Mount in a variety of ways. And even in this text here that James speaks of judgment that we just read so similar to Matthew chapter 6 verse 19 and 21 where Jesus says don't store up your treasures here on earth where moths eat them and rust destroys them and where thieves break in and steal but rather store your treasure in heaven where moths and rust cannot destroy and thieves do not break in and steal because where your treasure is there the desires of your heart will also be so again these parallels that are there in the Sermon on the Mount on Jesus' teaching and on what James is saying here. So again, in verse 5, where James says, you have spent your years on earth in luxury, satisfying your every desire. You fattened yourselves for the day of slaughter. You have condemned and killed innocent people who do not even resist you. And so as these landowners and these merchants and these people who had employed other people were oppressing them and bringing injustice upon them, Uh, one of the things that they would do is they would withhold their wages, as it talks about in this text. And so if these people had debts to pay, they would have no ability to pay their debts because they weren't even getting the just wages that they deserved. And then what would happen is that they would get thrown in jail because they couldn't pay their debts. And so they had no way of caring for their family or providing or actually paying back what was owed. And it was essentially like a death sentence because they had no way to move forward, no way to kind of come out of this amazing pit that they found themselves in. And so again, application for people who are employers or who have workers who work for them is, is there any part of this that that has any evidence of truth in my life? God, would you just show and reveal to me where this may be true? What do I need to hear? Let's keep reading in chapter five, verse seven to 11 as, as James makes a shift. And he shifts from speaking to those people maybe who are not in the room for the sake of those in the room. And now he speaks to those who are in the room, so to speak. Those who this letter is addressed to. Those who are facing persecution and hardships and challenges. And he says this, dear brothers and sisters. So he's talking to those who are part of the faith in Jesus Christ. And he's speaking to them on a very personal level. And he's saying to them, dear brothers and sisters, you need to be patient as you wait for the Lord's return." He says consider the farmers who patiently wait for the rains in the fall and in the spring they eagerly look for the valuable harvest to ripen ripen and you too must be patient he says take courage for the coming of the lord is near and don't grumble about each other brothers and sisters or you will be judged for look the judge is standing at the door for examples of patience and suffering dear brothers and sisters look at the prophets who spoke in the name of the lord we give great honor to those who endure under suffering For instance, you know about Job, a man of great endurance. And you can see how the Lord was kind to him at the end. For the Lord is full of tenderness and mercy. So here, James is speaking to those who are really struggling in faith. Really struggling to get by in persecution and challenge and hardship. On a really daily basis and in a way that I think for many of us, we just can't even comprehend or understand. And he says you need to endure with patience and perseverance and faith. And you need to do so with a view to the future. Of a a reality of the return of Jesus Christ that that gives you faith, that gives you confidence, that allows you to grow and mature. And in many ways, it's like he's going right back to where James started this this letter. And if you look at James chapter 1, even verses 2 and 4, this whole theme of perseverance and hardship... Where he says, consider it pure joy, my brothers, when you face trials of many kinds. Because you know the testing of your faith develops perseverance. And perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. So this theme runs through James where he's saying, you know what? You need to learn to persevere. You need to learn to, to see these trials that you're going through. And these hardships that you're going through as a way that God is growing, growing you up and maturing you in the faith. And that's part of what he's saying to these individuals now in chapter 5 as he comes more to the conclusion of this letter to them. And he's saying, you know what? You need to continue to have faith. You need to continue to persevere. You need to continue to have patience in a whole variety of different ways. And it comes by having a future hope. It comes by looking at a reality in the future that you don't see right now, but you need to trust in and you need to have confidence in. It's not a, Passive inactivity of not doing anything or just kind of sitting on your hands and waiting for Christ's return. But it's a very active waiting, it's an act of preparation, or as one commentator puts it, it's a it's like a militant patience of having intentionality, of persevering in a whole variety of ways. And he he says, look to the farmer. When the farmer plants his seed, he doesn't just sit idly by and wait for the crops to grow. There's all kinds of other work to do, and you have to continue to do the work in expectation of a harvest because you know that something is going to come at the end of this planting season and so you have to prepare for that so even as you're waiting for the crop to grow and you have very little ability to do a lot about that there is an expectancy and a preparation that's happening during that time and he's saying you need to live like that person who plants a seed and a crop and is waiting he says be patient take courage also, what I see in this text is is this whole issue of power. These people were believers who were in incredible poverty and, and in tough circumstances. And we would think, and they would often, I'm sure, feel very powerless at times. Like they just had so little power in their culture, in their society. But power is obtained in a whole variety of ways. Power actually in itself is a neutral term. It's not a good term or a bad term. It's not uh, just inherently negative or positive it's a very neutral term the question is is how do you use your power how do you steward your power in one way or another and so one way that people get power in our culture and in cultures for throughout all of history is is through money and so when people have money there is a sense of power or at least an illusion of power as we saw in proverbs but there is this ability to do things that others can't do there's a self-sufficiency of not really needing others in the same way. You don't have to rely on others in the same way. And so there is some sense of power that comes with that. But then James is encouraging them and he says, you know what, you have more power than you realize. And he says in in verse 4 that the cries of those who harvest your fields have reached the ears of the Lord of heaven's armies. And this incredible picture that As you pray and as you cry out to God, that you are crying out to a personal God who knows you, who cares for you, and who is the Lord of heaven's armies. This amazing picture of a power that we can draw from, a power of, of, of a God that we pray to. That your faith and your hope and your confidence is not in your wealth, but it's in this God, in Jesus Christ, who controls all things and who will one day return. And so it's this call to live with a future hope. Not to just get bogged down in today's realities and the realities that we can see and feel, experience every single day, but in the future realities that are every bit as true that we walk in faith with. That this future is in God's hands, that judgment will come, and that he is a just and righteous judge. And we need to leave vengeance to God alone. And again, at verse 9, he says, you know what? Words matter. He says, don't grumble. Grumblings form a judgment against others. And so he says, guard your words for look the judge is standing at the door when i read that i i thought of a parenting example and maybe it's silly but it, it worked in my mind and it came immediately you know when you have kids who are fighting and there's two kids who are kind of going at it and it's like okay i'm going to tell mom and dad and you or whatever and it's like they're they're really going at it and so on and what they don't realize is that you're standing right behind them listening to the whole thing And it's sort of this idea that, you know, James is saying, you know, don't just sit there and grumble and complain about each other and argue and fight with each other because he says, there is a righteous judge, the judge is standing at the door, he sees everything, he knows everything, he understands, and judgment will come that is just and true and right. And he also says, look to the prophets. The prophets, they spoke boldly, even to the kings of that day. He says, the prophets, they spoke boldly and they would proclaim truth, even if it was hard truth. But they didn't incite violence and uprisings. And so he's saying to these people, and he's encouraging them, be patient. There is a just God. When you're going through things that you can't understand and make no sense, and it just you can't explain it away, and you're crying out for help, he's saying, have hope. Hang in there. Persevere. God is with you. Jesus Christ is in control and will return one day. And then he gives this example again of one of the people in Scripture who is held up as being one of the greatest examples of patience in extreme circumstances and extreme suffering, the man of Job. He says he was a man of God of great faith, but a man who went through so much pain. And it so easily parallels the story of Horatio Spafford, which we heard earlier in the service. A very similar story of a man of God, a man of faith who experienced such pain, such suffering in ways that are hard to imagine and yet was able to pen a song like he did and proclaim the faithfulness of God and the goodness of God in the midst of that. And then in verse 12, to conclude this section, James says this, he says, But most of all, my brothers and sisters, never take an oath. By heaven or earth or anything else, just say a simple yes or no, so that you will not sin and be condemned. And again, he comes back to this idea that Mike spoke about last week, this idea of words having power and that our words matter and that our words reveal things within our hearts. And so there's power and importance in them. And so he says, don't make an oath is what James is saying. Don't, don't create a dichotomy with your words. In other words, you're saying, sometimes I speak truth and sometimes, well, maybe I don't speak truth. He's saying you always need to be a follower of Christ who just simply speaks truth because that's integrity. And when you are a person who is known to always speak truth, people trust you. There's no need to make oaths because you always speak truth. In conclusion, I would summarize with a few thoughts from this text. First of all, how we use our earthly wealth matters. We are called to live with the generosity for others. We are called to live with the reality that everything that we have, everything that we own is not ours. It belongs to the living God. And he has entrusted us to steward it. And to be always asking those questions, God, how would you have us steward your money, our possessions, those things that you have given to us as your gifts? Secondly, I would say that our words matter. And again, as we see in this text, whether it's grumbling or whether it's judgments against others or whether it's the giving of oaths, but the reality that our words matter, that words are powerful and what we speak out of our mouths reveals what is already in our hearts. And so to pay attention to those words, to pay attention to words and how they come out of us because of what what it reveals of what is in us. And then thirdly, that we would live with a future hope. That our confidence and our identity would be found in the reality of Jesus Christ's return. And that our identity and our confidence or wouldn't just be seen in our current reality, that Scripture continually points us beyond the present and even beyond the past, and how our identity is actually defined even more so by the future. In fact, who God is and who you really are, are understood in light of the past and present for sure. But more importantly, they are understood in, the light, of, in light of the future of who you will be. One author, Mark Buchanan, he says it this way. He says, this is as crucial to your full identity as who you have been or have become. The future shapes you every bit as much as the past or the present, maybe more. Destiny, every bit as much as history, determines our identity. And so we need to remember that, especially when we go through times of trial and suffering and difficulty, that what will happen in the future is far more important than what Has happened. This is the true reality that James is pointing to, which allows you, which allows me, which allows us, to endure suffering, whatever that looks like, the imminent return of Jesus Christ, our Lord. I want to invite the worship team up, and they're going to lead us in a concluding song. But as they come up, just one thought that has really stuck with me is: I, whenever I look at James. I feel like if there's ever anything that can help solidify our confidence in who Jesus Christ is, and the truth of his claims of, of being the living God, that this was God in the flesh, and, and how do we understand whether or not that is true or not? But yet here is James, and, and most commentators place the writing of this book as the one who was Jesus' half-brother, the one who grew up with Jesus, who saw him in his childhood, who... At times, as you look in Scripture and see this James who did have some doubts and was skeptical about, is Jesus really who he says he is? And now who comes to the end of and having come past the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ and now this half-brother says of Jesus, he says, I'm a slave of his. I'm a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. You don't say that of a brother unless you truly believe. It's true. So that we can walk in confidence and knowing of who Jesus is as he says he is and that we can live with that confidence and faith of his return one day. Would you stand with me as I conclude in prayer? Heavenly Father, I pray that we could live with the kind of faith and confident hope that James is challenging these believers here in this letter. And I pray, Lord, for everyone who... Struggles with persecution or oppression or challenges as we look around the world and we see so many countless people who struggle under these kind of conditions that we can't even imagine. Oh Lord, we pray for these brothers and sisters that you would encourage them, that you would comfort them, that you would be their strength, that you would be their hope. We pray, Lord, for justice. We pray, pray, Lord, for peace. We pray that you would do more things than we could ask or imagine in these places in the world with incredible conflict where we feel in many ways helpless, but we pray to the Lord of heaven's armies. And Father, I pray for each one of us today as we have read even these strong words of warning and judgment, Lord, I I pray, I pray that it's not true of us in terms of how we handle our money, how we view that as our security or paying the fair wages of workers or whatever the case may be, Lord, that these would not be true of us. And Father, that we would be able to live lives of integrity in our actions, and in our words. And so, Lord, I pray that you would give us patience and perseverance in our current circumstances because of our confidence in you, because of a future hope that we hold on to. Would you help us to live with that kind of view of the reality of your return? And We praise you, Lord Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.